you've never met before, uh, my name is Matt Luloyan. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here of Liberty Church. Uh, we're part of a network, a family of churches. Uh, actually, just yesterday, I was in um, Newtown Square, just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, several years ago, we were about four years old as a church. Several years ago, we'd go to these kind of once-a-year gatherings of all the church pastors and elders, and there were like maybe 10 of us or 12 of us in the room, uh, and there's like 30 of us in the room now. Uh, there's nine churches that are part of our network, so there's just a lot that we're thanking God for. Uh, as he's, we've, he's just seen fit to, to see more churches planted, um, more uh, elders uh, raised up in those churches. Um, so we're grateful to be part of a, a church family and church network outside of what just God's doing here in Harrisburg. We're going to be in uh, Jonah chapter 3 today, so if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way there. Tim mentioned those black hardcover Bibles under your seat. If you're using one of those, uh, page 775 is where we're going to be. And just as we uh, make our way there, um, one of the things that I've been preparing for at the end of this month is our first ever uh, family worship Sunday. We'll get some more information and details out to you in the weeks coming up. But what really that has been for me, among other things, has been a reminder, and particularly today I think it's applicable, um, just how, how important and how much of a gift families are. And for all of you moms that are here today, just how much of a gift you are uh, in the midst of the the mundane and the ordinary, uh, and even in our culture, things that just aren't valued, like uh, the time that you spend with your kids isn't necessarily something that our culture looks at and values. Uh, so just want to say to you, thank you for the, the energy that you pour into your family. Uh, if you're a mom in this room or have ever been a mom or ever longed to be a mom, thank you um, for that. It's a real gift that we don't see the we don't see the effects of Actually, we usually see the negative effects when that doesn't happen. Um, so it's an often thankless and, and undervalued thing. But um, we see, I see, and, and respect and appreciate the, the, the work that you do uh, as a mom. So thank you uh, for that. Uh, we're continuing on in our series in Jonah this morning. We've spent just a few weeks in this book we've got today and then one more week uh, in, in the book of Jonah. And we're going to just jump right in today. We're going to do Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got Jonah chapter 3 pulled up, uh, you can follow along with me uh, as, I, as I read that. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. 
God, thank you for um, the example written down for us, preserved in these pages, uh, that your word is not just a historical document, not just a literary document, but it is living and active, and it shows us not only something that happened in history, but something that happens in our own heart and needs to happen in our own heart. And as we come this morning and we consider uh, what repentance is and our need for it, uh, I pray that whatever baggage we have around that, that word or that idea, that you just would um, help us to put that aside, uh, that you would help us just to really perceive uh, your nature and character that leads us to repentance, and that even today in these moments, this would not be merely an academic understanding kind of exercise together, but that you would do deep work in our hearts, uh, that you would lead us to continue to be people who live this life and lifestyle of repentance. Uh, So do that work in us. Uh, We pray that you would be present in our time uh, together. We pray that in your name. Amen. So this is a a text, really, that's all about uh, repentance, both Jonah's and then all of these people in this huge city of of Nineveh. So uh, we're going to look at the repentance that we see in this text in three different parts. We're first going to look at enabled repentance, and then enacted repentance, and then effective repentance. Repentance. Enabled repentance, enacted repentance, effective repentance. So first, let's talk about enabled repentance. Okay, at its essence, uh, repentance is really a change of heart. It's a turning. Those would be other ways we could talk about what repentance is. And specifically, when we think about repentance in the Christian faith, um, repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward God. So our hearts, our lives, they are devoted to something all the time. We are people who devote our lives, who worship is another word we could use. We worship something or someone constantly. Usually, and before Christ intervenes in our lives, our lives are devoted to lesser, uh, cheap substitutes for the one true God. Maybe we're devoted to money. Or maybe we're devoted to power or to success or to comfort. Um, maybe we're devoted to ourselves. You know, we just look to ourselves as the end-all, be-all of, of life. Whatever it is, uh, repentance is a change of heart where we turn away from whatever else we're devoted to and we turn to God. Now, how does that happen? This is a, a choice that, that we make. We have to choose to repent. And it's a, it's a choice that we make over and over again in life. Repentance is, is a lifestyle. You hear me say that multiple times this morning. The famous uh, reformer Martin Luther uh, once said that uh, all of a Christian's life is a life of repentance, something we do over and over again. But first and foremost, before repentance is a choice for us and a lifestyle for us, it's something that has to be enabled by God. So God shows us, uh, in the first place, our need to repent. He opens our eyes to that, and then he does this deep and invisible and mysterious work to actually change our hearts. And we see that play out in this text really in two different respects. We see that play out in Jonah's life and then through Jonah's life. So first, in in Jonah. Um, Verse 1 here of chapter 3 is really identical almost to the first verse in the entire book, to Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. So Jonah has the exact same commands, the exact same message from God given to him twice. And far as we can tell, he's the only prophet in the Bible who ever has his assignment repeated to him this specifically. He has to have it twice. 
The first time that he receives that, and we've been seeing that as we've studied this book together, he runs away from God. He gets on a ship, tries to flee to Tarshish. Uh, But we see God runs after him, and via the words of the the pagan sailors, um, via this huge storm, via uh, falling into the ocean seemingly to his death, and then the belly of the great fish, God brings him back really to the exact same starting point in which we found him when the book began. But there's a, a big difference There's a big difference this second time around. And I want you to picture the scene. Because I think this is often a part of Jonah that gets lost in the the grandiose kind of picture of him in the belly of the fish. This part of it seems to get lost. Uh, I mentioned uh, a couple weeks back that there was a mural that I saw once in a children's ministry wing of a church where uh, it showed the whale kind of coming up onto the beach and Jonah emerging triumphantly from the mouth of the whale. Like he's like holding up the mouth of the whale and stepping out onto the beach. That's not how this goes down uh, in in the actual story. It says at the end of uh, chapter 2, the fish vomited Jonah out onto dry land. When you vomit something, it doesn't really emerge triumphantly uh, from your mouth. And so if you can just imagine uh, what it would be like to be vomited out of the, the belly of a great creature of the sea, or what that would smell like. You know, if you've ever smelled rotting fish, this is probably a lot worse than that because there's a lot of that, I'm sure, in this fish's belly. We're told in Scripture that that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, It's hard to imagine you could even have an ounce of pride left when you've just been vomited out of a creature of the sea onto dry land. Jonah is humbled here in a way that he is not when we meet him at the beginning of the story. And in his humility now, God is very gracious to him and gives him a second chance. And this is is what we see at the beginning of chapter 3. It's a second chance. It's a new beginning for Jonah. And that new beginning is possible really because God is the God of second chances. And he's the God of third chances. And he's the God of 50th chances and 500th chances. Uh, He's the God of new beginnings. And so humbled by God, Jonah now has been brought to this place where he can truly repent. In one sense, this is really a resurrection story. God has been working a a kind of resurrection in Jonah's life, and we saw him in the belly of Sheol, right? The belly of death. Now that belly has really become the womb that's birthing new life for Jonah, a second chance for Jonah. He's rescued, he's restored, he's sent back out with another opportunity. And this time, rather than run, he's going to listen. He's going to obey the call of God. And that really is repentance. Not just words, but really a a turning. He's turning from his disobedience and now turning to obey the call of God. So God is enabling repentance in Jonah by bringing him through all of the things we've studied so far leading up to this point. Also, he's enabling repentance through Jonah. Because really the substance of Jonah's repentance is that Jonah now is sent to this great city of Nineveh. And this really is one of the most common ways that God enables repentance in the lives of other people. It's when he sends his own repentant people among other people who need to repent. The Apostle Paul, years later, will say uh, in the book of Romans, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? But that this is the power of God at work and not like the eloquence of Jonah's words 
or like the force of his personality or anything like that. It's really evident by what he actually says, by the message Jonah actually delivers to the Ninevites. This is a really odd and really short sermon. It's only a few words. There's no mention at all of God in it. There's no mention of specific reasons that Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Like there's no listing of the charges against Nineveh. And there's not even an opportunity given to repent. It's really just a message of God's judgment. He's saying, 40 days and you're finished. Goodbye. That is the content of what Jonah says to the people of Nineveh. But what happens? The whole city immediately repents. Through this message of judgment, the power of God, it has to be the power of God because what else could it possibly be? The power of God is at work bringing about a change of heart among the people of Nineveh. So two questions for us and for your reflection in light of, of this. Number one, how is God enabling repentance in you? And then number two, how is God enabling repentance through you? So in you, uh, what is it that, that is going on in your life right now at present? Uh, where are you experiencing a longing in your life for things to be different than they are? Where have you grown tired of falling into the same kind of patterns again and again only to experience the same results that don't satisfy? Right? See that, start to see that as God enabling repentance, as God opening your eyes to the areas in your life where you need to pursue repentance. You can't turn away from something and turn to God until you really, at a deep level, perceive the futility of what you're already involved in and the hopelessness of that. So start to connect these longings that you experience. Start to connect uh, the failures that you experience in your life and these things that you run to over and over again. Start to connect that as the work of God in your life. He's, he's really drawing you to a place of repentance through that. Second, how is God then enabling repentance through you? Just like Jonah, we see this play, uh, play out over and over again in Scripture. Um, God's repentant people are really the most common instrument that he uses to bring about even more repentance in the lives of others. So the question for us is, is how might God be using us to bring the same thing about in the lives of others? How might God use us to help other people turn from these things that aren't satisfying and that are futile in their life? If repentance is enabled by God, here's the beautiful thing, um, that takes the pressure off of you and me. It's not going to be by the eloquence of our words. It's not going to be by the, 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 the winsomeness of our personality. The way that God uses Jonah here is in spite of Jonah. He doesn't have a great even message to give. It's just a very short sermon of judgment. And yet God does powerful work through that. So now instead for us, instead of obligation, like now I have to go do this, it's an opportunity for us that God is going to enable repentance in the lives of others just by our presence and our relationships with others. So that's enabled repentance. Um, Second, from this text, we learn a lot about enacted repentance. What does the repentance of the Ninevites actually entail? What does that look like? And what does that teach us in turn about what our own repentance should look like? Three things. Uh, Belief, brokenness, and breaking away. So first, uh, verse 5 says this, the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. At its core, repentance is believing God. 
And we sometimes, I think, view repentance and faith as kind of separate things. But really, they are inseparable. They are really two sides of the same exact coin. Uh, Repentance is turning from sin, turning to God. So another way we could talk about repentance, repentance is really rejecting unbelief, turning away from unbelief and choosing to believe God instead. For the Ninevites, repentance is going to work itself out in actions, but really, ultimately, foundationally, it's a matter of belief. And this language of saying the Ninevites believed God, it would draw the ear of the hearer back to all the way to Genesis chapter 15, where the same language is used of Abraham, father of the Israelite people. Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So God saw Abraham as righteous, not because of the the actions and, and works that Abraham did, but because he had faith. He believed. If repentance for you is a concept that is shrouded in mystery, or if when you hear the word repentance, the only connotation in your mind are like the billboards on the side of the turnpike that say repent or turn or burn or whatever they might, whatever they might say, I just would invite you to allow this to bring some sweet simplicity to your life. At its core, repentance is believing God. It's believing God. It's agreeing with Him that whatever it is that you're currently pursuing isn't working, and it's trusting Him to be the source of life, the source of salvation for you. Now, as I mentioned, for the Ninevites, this is more, though, than just kind of empty words or empty statements of belief. They demonstrate their repentance by the second thing we see here, which is brokenness. Or they fast, uh, they put on sackcloth, they sit in ashes. Those are all ways to demonstrate mourning and grieving. It's something you would do when someone passed away. So they're, they're broken over their sin. And their physical posture of grieving like this and putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes, that's reflecting the posture of their hearts. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us there's, there are really two types of grieving or sorrow over sin. And in that passage in 2 Corinthians 7, he highlights this huge difference between being sad about the consequences of sin versus actually being sorrowful over the sin itself. So it's one thing for us to acknowledge the damage that our sin does. We do something we shouldn't do or we fail to do something that we should do. That, that has ripple effects. That has consequences. It's damaging in our life. It's damaging in the lives of others. We get sad about that. That's okay. That's right to be sad about the damaging effects. But it's actually an altogether different thing to be sad about the sin itself, to really hate the sin itself for what it is, for this rebellion against God that it is, this... this um, turning away from God and choosing to go your own way instead. And Paul says there in that passage, it's that second type of sorrow, that godly grief that leads to repentance that then in turn brings salvation. So this is always an important question for us as we wrestle through this life of repentance and pursuing repentance. Are we merely sad about the consequences of sin in our lives? Or are we truly broken over the sin itself? We come to see the, the offense that it is, the rebellion that it is, and we're very sad about the sin itself. So there's belief, there's brokenness, there's also here a break from your former ways among the Ninevites. The, the king of Nineveh says in verse 8, Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. And what he says, as he says that, it means that the, the change of heart that's happening, the change of belief, the brokenness that they're experiencing, that's working its way outward into an outward change of moral behavior. And without this, really, at the end of the day, repentance isn't repentance. 
uh, words, posture, can just really become a pious veneer for you and I to persist in sin. Genuine repentance, first and foremost, is the matter of belief, and it is a matter of being broken and sad about the sin itself, but that belief always works itself out through genuine brokenness and then into the actions where we turn away from sin. We break from that former way of life. We pursue a new way of life instead. So this is what repentance looked like for the people of Nineveh. Uh, It's also what repentance really is meant to look like for you and me. And this is something that we do initially uh, as we enter the kingdom of God when we're not uh, currently considering ourselves to be Christians, we're not trusting in Jesus. We do this initially to become Christians, to become God's people. But then we do this again and again. And if you hear me really say one thing this morning, hear me say this, you don't ever graduate or get promoted from repentance. Like there's not a 201, 301, 401, 501 class beyond this. This is all of a Christian's life. We don't ever move past it. We believe God, we turn away from sin, we turn to God, and we do that over and over and over and over again. Something else here that's really critical for us to see. Uh, Repentance is one of the great equalizers of humanity. It's one of the great equalizers of humanity. And we see that in Nineveh. From the least of them to the greatest of them, all of Nineveh repents. And the king himself here provides a great picture and a great example. Right? How's this for a picture of repentance? He gets up off of his throne, trades his royal robes for sackcloth, sits down in ashes. That's a real picture of what repentance looks like. We get off the throne of our lives. We acknowledge there's a greater ruler than us. We acknowledge there's some higher sovereign than we are. We get up off of the throne and we let God take his rightful place as the ruler, as the sovereign in our lives. Repentance is one of these core things that unites us as humanity. What what is true about all of us as human beings? Well, number one, we're created by God, and we're created in his image, and we're called good. You know, we have inherent worth and value because we've been created by him. But also, all of us are fallen and broken people because of sin. We're all people in need of rescue. We looked at that a lot last week. And so therefore, we're all people who are invited and called to repent. So repentance is this great equalizer. And I would, I would put it to you this way. If we think or if we live our lives as one who doesn't need to repent, that's actually a denial of your humanity. To live as someone who doesn't need to repent in an ongoing way is to deny your humanity. And because it denies your humanity, not only will that do damage in your own life, it actually will create distance from real people and real relationships. And we see this, I think, play out all the time, both outside and inside the church. Outside the church, this is why we don't trust people who never apologize for anything, who never admit that they're wrong. Someone ever, if you've never heard someone apologize for something in their life, how much do you trust that person? You don't. You're going to struggle to trust that person. Inside the church, this is something I think that really hinders and and kills genuine relationships and genuine community among Christians. And it replaces it with pretense. Right? If if you're a Christian, and if repentance for you is only a rearview mirror kind of thing, uh, you repented that one time when you came to faith in Christ, you repented that one time for that one horrible thing you did 20 years ago, if it's only in the rearview mirror, it's not something you invite people into in the present, then functionally that's going to create distance between you and other people. 
And if you do that enough, if we do that enough, eventually entire churches become characterized by a culture where everything looks shiny and polished and good when we get together, but we're hiding our real selves from one another. More than that, uh, it's not just Christian community that we kill if we do this. We actually then hinder our opportunity to be faithfully present among people in our world who are currently unconvinced of the gospel and who themselves need to experience repentance. Right? What's the difference between me and one of those billboards that says turn or burn? Well, not much if repentance is only ever a rearview mirror thing for me. Right? The reason that those billboards, the reason that those messages on the side of the turnpike or wherever you might see them are so damaging, in my opinion, isn't because the content is false. Actually, most of the time, there's a lot of truth in the content of what those messages say. They're damaging because it, they make it easy for whoever writes that message to stay comfortably and self-righteously distant from the one who reads it. As if this is a problem for you, and it was for me one day, but is no longer. Right? Repentance is meant to be and is a great equalizer. So let's not deny our humanity by pretending that we aren't constantly in need of repentance because that is what will cultivate genuine relationships with real people, both in Christian community and in the world that so desperately needs this. Enabled repentance, enacted repentance, third, effective repentance. In Jonah 3, we don't just see God enabling repentance, We also see God responding to repentance. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So at the end of the day, the end of Jonah chapter 3, the repentance of the Ninevites is effective. right? It brings about a result. And, And I would invite you this morning to not miss the two turnings that are here in this chapter. So there's the Ninevites turning away from their sin, but there's also a turning in God. He relents, it says, from the disaster he said he would do. And this isn't the only time that we see this uh, in Scripture. If you look up uh, the word relent in Scripture, you'll see it actually play out in multiple places. One of the most recognizable is this infamous incident of the golden calf. So the Israelites walking around the wilderness after they're freed from Egypt, they melt down their earrings. Aaron makes a golden calf for them. They start to worship the golden calf. Moses is away. He's up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments on the two tablets. He comes down, sees that they're worshiping this golden idol. God gets angry, and he tells Moses, stand back so I can wipe all of them off of the face of the earth. And we'll just start over with you, Moses. We'll start over. We'll make another group of people through you. Moses intercedes on their behalf, and God relents, just like in this story, from the disaster he said he was going to bring. Now, if you've... uh, I know we have various backgrounds in the room. Various ones of us have been around the church or Christianity for a while, or we're brand new to it. If you've studied some theological concepts like the sovereignty of God, this will explode your categories a little bit. Uh... The question you'll wrestle with is, like, is God completely in control or is God responding to humanity? And in our logical or or limited minds, it's got to be one or the other. It has to be one of those things. Which one is it? Well, I think the answer in light of Jonah 3 is yes. Which one is it? Yes. Uh, Let this break down any kind of box that you're tempted to put God in. Jonah 3 shows us that God is both the one who enables repentance, he clearly is doing work that can't be done by human hands, and at the same time, he's responding 
to repentance. He relents of the disaster he plans on bringing, and he shows mercy to these 120,000 people of Nineveh. And on a practical note, uh, for our day, I just would invite you to this. Let this restore your faith in both God's desire and God's power to see massive change of heart among the people in our world. One of the things that I personally have been repenting of a lot lately is my cynicism and my small view of God. I was down at a conference among pastors and church planters last week and heard a lot of encouraging stories of, of people in churches both in the U.S. and overseas where like thousands of people were coming to faith in Christ. And particularly about those large numbers in the U.S., I found myself thinking like, how accurate is that? Or how sincere is that? Like, can we just wait 20 years from now and see how those, how those numbers play out? Like, how many of those people will be disenfranchised, disillusioned? How many people get to count those numbers of baptisms and people coming to faith in Christ and then only 20 years later, like, are still trying to pick up the pieces of their lives because they've never really been poured into well? You hear the cynicism in that? There's a lot of cynicism in that. Um, it's shaped by experience, some. But at the same time, like, who am I to say that God hasn't done that deep, powerful work in the lives of all these people? Because he's done it before. He did it in Nineveh. He did it in our own backyard a couple hundred years ago in the Great Awakening. He did it in my life. He did it in a lot of your lives. He does that work. Repentance is enabled by God and then is effective. And so I should and we should, we should expect the powerful work of God. We should expect God to save people. As we saw at the end of, the, of chapter 2 last week, salvation belongs to him, so we should fully expect that he's going to be the God of salvation. And he's going to save people. He's going to rescue people. And we need to repent not only of other sins that are maybe more obvious, we need to repent of cynicism and a small view of God that tempts us to think that he's not doing the same work in our day. Why is this repentance effective? There's something that the king of Nineveh says here that I think is really significant. He says, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And as he says that, there's there's no presumption in that. There's no certainty uh, there's no magic formula. He's uttering some words, and then in, in light of those words that he's uttered, God's going to relent and forgive. And the lack of presumption means there's a sincerity of his repentance that I think is really beautiful. But the question for us, like, is that all that you and I have when we repent? A wishful thinking, uh, hope against hope, who knows? Is that all we have? Friends, I would say to you this morning, that you and I are in a far better place than the king of Nineveh. And we have far more offered to us than the king of Nineveh did. Because God, for us, has not only shown a disposition to forgive, he himself has secured the effectiveness of our repentance. Repentance is effective. Why? It's because God enables repentance and then he responds to it. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Sent into the world, Jesus is the ultimate messenger of God. He's the one who comes in his first proclamation is repent and believe. He calls the world to repentance. But he is also the definitive declaration that God will respond to repentance. That God will put away his judgment. That God will put away condemnation against our sin through the finished work of Jesus. 
So I don't know for you what your impression of God is this morning or what baggage you carry around about that. But may you see in these words that God is not reluctant or hesitant to save or to forgive. And though we should emulate the sincerity and and the absence of presumption that comes from the king of Nineveh, I think that's worthy of emulation. There is far more held out to you and me than simply a wishful who knows. Because of Jesus, God will forgive. He will relent. He will respond to repentance. Because of Jesus, our repentance will be effective for you and I to lay hold of the mercy of God. And that is what we come every week to this table to celebrate. It's because of the finished work of Jesus, God will pour out mercy on his people. See, this isn't a table for perfect and put-together people. If that were the case, none of us could come to this table with any kind of integrity. It's not a table for perfect people. It's not a table for put-together people. It's a table for repentant people. And in contrast to some of what people in our world, some people in our world would have you believe, the world is not filled with good people and bad people, good eggs and bad eggs. The world is filled with broken people. And there are broken people who repent and experience the mercy of God. And there are people who don't repent and don't experience the mercy of God. So as you come to this table today, come repentant, but in your repentance, come with confidence that because of Jesus, you will receive mercy, you will receive grace to help in your time of need. I want to close with this. For centuries, uh, in the Jewish liturgical calendar, this book, the book of Jonah, is read on Yom Kippur. Uh, It's the book that is read on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the Jewish faith. Um, This year, Yom Kippur falls on October 11th and 12th. Uh, And the reason that it's read on Yom Kippur is so many of the lessons of Jonah connect to the meaning and the lessons of Yom Kippur. Things like you can't hide from the presence of God. That God is merciful toward all of his people and all of creation. That God always stands ready and willing to show mercy, to forgive, especially when people are genuinely repentant. So I want to close this morning by reading one of the prayers that's used in the concluding service for Yom Kippur. And I'm going to put it on the slide uh, behind me here too, so I'll get out of the way so you can actually see that. Uh, I'm going to put this on the slide. Um, I'll read this for us, and I'm just going to leave it up there for us for your time of reflection before you come to this table. But listen uh, to these words. We've grown accustomed to sin. We've grown accustomed to sin. And the fragments of Scripture lie shattered in our life. Charity has withered with calculation, and the sparks of purity have burnt out. Yet still we come, and God who said, I have forgiven, whispers it again to us and waits for our reply. What shall it be? What form will it take? Let us repair what can still be repaired. Let us give back the gain we earned by injustice. Let us make peace with our injured brother. Let us restore the person we wronged. Let us admit what is false in ourselves. Let us put right what is wrong in our family life. Let us not sour the joy of living. The gates of his mercy are still open. Let us enter in. We need not wait for October to experience the realities of this. Today, in this very moment, 
through the finished work of Jesus, God's gates of mercy are open. So as repentant people pursuing a lifestyle of repentance, may we enter in. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we are reminded today of the weight of our sin. We are reminded today of our need to be repentant people, but we're also reminded of your heart and your love and your compassion for us. That you are a God who longs to be merciful, who relents. You are a God who responds to genuine repentance. And you bring that repentance about by sending your messengers into the world. You've done that work in our lives for many of us. You are doing that work in the lives for many more. And so we pray today, God, that you would help us not be afraid of repentance, that we would look to your finished work, Jesus, and see that we don't have to just say what the king of Nineveh says, who knows, maybe God will be nice and forgive us. We can say he will forgive because of Jesus. And may we come to this table this morning with hearts full of faith, believing you to repent and turn away from our sin and turn to you, confident that we will lay hold of your mercy. Your gates of mercy are open. We long to enter in. Enable us by your spirit to enter in this morning. We pray that in your name. Amen.